Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Ian Frazier, who sold his company, Tour Experience Golf, TXG, to club champion in 2022. But before we get there, as you're going to learn, Ian and his team have built up an enormously popular YouTube channel. Now, as a former professional golfer myself, I absolutely love watching Ian's videos. But if you're new to the channel, I have linked to that channel over in our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com, along with my personal three favorite videos that I think you will enjoy. So I have linked to all of those videos in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Okay, now let me tell you a little bit more about today's episode with Ian. Now, obviously, if you're a golf fan, you're absolutely going to love today's interview. But beyond that, there are a lot of things within this episode that I think you'll enjoy, even if you're not an avid golfer, including how to share your secret sauce with your employees using Ian's distinctive training methods, how to transform your marketing strategy into a profitable revenue stream, how to develop a cult-like following, how to optimize the structure of your earnout to maximize your business's value, how to skillfully negotiate with potential acquirers seeking to obtain your business at a discount, and how to highlight the future value and potential of your business to elicit higher offers from potential acquirers. Here to share with you his remarkable story is Ian Frazier. Enjoy. Ian Fraser, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for the invite. Tell me about TXG. What was your business model? Uh, our business model was to bring tour-level club fitting and club building to the average weekend warrior golfer. So, you know, people see the PGA Tour, they see the best players in the world, and, and rightly so, they see them as, you know, the aspirational sort of goal in terms of, you know, playing this game. And reach the, the the reach of getting to people to have 14 golf clubs in their bag that are specifically driven to allow them to enjoy the game the most they can and play to the best level they can was something that really wasn't widely available uh, when I first moved to, to Canada from the UK. So really was that was the, the tour experience golf. It was it was twofold. It was I had came from working on the tour and in, in Europe working with the best players over there. And we wanted to bring that tour level experience to our clients. Got it. And when you say working, you were fitting golf clubs for professional Correct. golf clubs? Yep, okay. yep. So I was a yep. fitter, uh, a tech rep uh, with TaylorMade Golf in Europe. So uh, I was based uh, in Scotland and, and would run the, the performance centers. And latter, the latter part was the uh, TaylorMade Performance Lab, which was kind of the top of the pyramid of the TaylorMade club fitting world. Um, and then and amongst that, you know, I'd work with, European tour players uh, and US tour players, you know, whenever they needed support as well. Okay, I got a confession to make. I play golf with my dad once every other year. Mm-hmm. And I say golf in the sense that in air quotes, because my capacity to play golf is limited to nine holes. Right. So like nine holes is my is my limit. Like by by the ninth hole, I'm just waiting for the end. I just I'm just dying. Yeah. So as we have this conversation, you're gonna need to kind of bear with me as I ask some really dumb questions about golf. But I, but I hope to to be able to get a lot of my listeners will be of course much much more advanced golfers than I, and so they'll be kind of a bit frustrated at this. But I'll I'll go as quickly as I can. So 
so you know, I'm the way I think about again. I probably bought a set of clubs 15 years ago. I still right. use them. They're lefty clubs. You know, use them seven times probably. I probably went into I don't even remember, but I probably went to like a big box retail store, mm-hmm. uh, like a sport check or something like that, and just bought whatever was on sale. Was is probably how I thought about it at the time. So so it sounds like more serious golfers are are going and and wanting clubs that are 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 sort of higher end but yeah. there's a it seems like with like like Savile Row suits there's another layer beyond just like the best tailor made there's a tailor made that's sort of actually custom made for you like explain yes. that yeah so you you've you've kind of touched on some other sort of industries and markets that that are very comparable to what and, and Savile Row suits is a great one because you know we always say you know, there's so many layers to the term club fitting, and it's it's a pretty vague term, and it and it can mean many different things. You know, some of the mad bug bears is people call themselves master club fitters, right? So, I mean, there's certifications in big box stores that if you do a two week course, you're designated as a master club fitter. Well, I've been doing this and nothing other than this for twenty years, and and mastery. I don't believe is is yet to be achieved until you've been in something the duration of your career. So for the golfers, listen, a Bob Vokey, you know, people like Bob Vokey are, are masters of their craft. Butch Harmon in the teaching side is a master of craft because he's done it for 50 years. You know, they, he, these people have achieved mastery in what they do. So when it comes to you know, what we offer it is, is, as I say, top of the pyramid, we have for any golfer walking into one of our stores, there's over 60,000 hittable options as we interchange heads, shafts, and grips. So, I mean, obviously we're we're not going to get anywhere near hitting all of those. And that really, you know, that burden is on us to pan pick the right head, shaft, and grip using the technology we have in our own experience to narrow that down as a filter system to make sure that we can go, okay, this is what you brought to us. This is what you're going to walk out with. And we know you're going to play better golf and enjoy the game more. Okay. So help me understand the the shafts Mm -hmm. that that you fit people on are are they manufactured by one of the brands I would recognize like a Callaway or TaylorMade or are no, they kind of they're, separate they are they're brand like are they unbranded shafts if you will no no okay. they they are they are they're branded by kind of again OEMs now uh, original equipment manufacturers so some of the ones you know well known would be the Mitsubishi family so they make obviously they're in you know, electrical goods, they're, they're all over your household in terms of they make shafts. Um, Mitsubishi Chemical is, is their graphite shaft, you know, name. Okay. Uh, there's a company called Fujikura. There's here in uh, Canada, there's um, Acra, which is part of the True Sports family. So there's, there's, there's so many, John, in terms of the, the shaft world. And, and that really has a big part of why our model is, exists today, because when there were so many different shaft options out there. It really took a level of expertise to be able to sort of dive into what one does John need and what one does Ian need and, and why do they need those particular ones. Is there ones? that much difference? I mean, like I'm thinking you, you, wouldn't, you would not believe it. I mean, you know. Really? Yeah. Like you, I'm a crappy golfer. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like uh, you know, like when my, when my dad scores the round, it'll be like, what's the maximum on this? Well, it's a par five. So maximum I think is like eight. Well, yeah. why did you give me eight, Dad? Because I'm not sure I was <laughs> north of that. So that's the kind of golfer I'm in. But like, like, would you see a difference in my game if I got fancy clubs? 
Easy answers, yes. And in my sort of elevator pitch to you would be you're not good enough not to have custom golf clubs, right? You don't play enough. Your level of skill for the game, you're, you've not acquired the feel for, for golf clubs and, and ball flight and, and these things to not have clubs that are specifically built for you. Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so what's the business model? I'm, I'm dying to find out the economics of this. So mm-hmm. how do you make money? Who pays for what? And what's the deal? So there, there's, there's kind of two parts to it. So we're paid for our fitting services mm-hmm. uh, and, and our clients buy the clubs from us. Now, they, they don't have to buy the clubs from us. You, you can have a client or we have clients who come in, they, they use our fitting services and maybe they have a friend who can get a club for cheaper. They maybe have a loyalty to their club pro at the place they play, which is honestly absolutely fine. I, you know, I believe that there's enough, we will get enough of the, the pie for us to make our model successful. And we know that to be the case over the last 20 years of doing it. We know that's going to be the case if we provide the right service, which we do. So you know, we convert to about 70% of the clients who walk through the door at a TXG. You convert 70% to buying something yes, from you. to buy something from us. So, you know, rough, rough math. Um, you know, our, our clients spend on average about $2,000. They can, we convert about 70% of the time. So as we scale this business model, there's, there's obviously, it is, it's very easy on that model. There's X amount of fits we expect to do per day, which is around two and a half fits per day is what it averages out at. So we know then per store when we go into a new location or new territory, we need to know that we can get that amount of golfers to come through our door to make our business viable. Um, and obviously, you know, we have the, the sort of profit set at, you know, the, the specific, you know, uh, benchmarks for us to make it a successful business. And are there TXG stores or is it a store within a store concept? Like if I go to a golf town, will mm-hmm. I see a TXG store inside? No, no, okay. you you won't. You'll see you'll see standalone TXG stores. Um, we were you know we consider ourselves a destination uh, that you set aside you know your day, half your day to to come and and do this. And you know it's as part of the the experiences that if you come and get a full set, a full fitting from me, we're going to spend four hours together. Wow. And uh, and it might actually be slightly longer if we get chatting about your game and you want to kind of unveil some stuff. You know, I have have clients John flying in from. Uh, Dubai, a lot coming in from the US. Really? And, yeah, a lot. I was 80% of my week is spent dealing with international clients who are flying in from all over the world, you know, Asia, uh, Middle East, everywhere. But they're coming for you. So how do you scale yeah. this? If if you're the guy, mm-hmm. you've got a brand, personal brand, you did it for TaylorMade back in right. Scotland. Like mm-hmm. how did you, I mean, was this is this business you or were you able to kind of replicate it to other locations? The, the business became a business when I stopped doing as many fittings, hmm. right? So, you know, it was, it was very funneled towards me at the start. You know, we, my sales supported the business for the most part, probably 60 to 70% of, of what we do annually would come out of my bay, even when we had three or four other guys doing, you know, the same thing as what I did. Um, but, and I knew that that would be the case and we had to build a reputation and we had to build a standard within our company and I had to lead by example within that standard. But the day had to come where I had to, you know, let the let the baby walk and uh and and you know let the guys be recognized for their own merits. So I wanted TXG to be built around a standard, not about a, a person, a standard bearer. You know, I wanted to be that person, but I didn't want people to be traveling and just to see Ian Fraser. And 
lots of companies I've used the example for, but you know, Nobu is a high-end sort of experience when you go to, to dine with any Nobu restaurant. You don't know who your chef is. You don't know who's making your food. You just know what you're going to get from an experience standpoint. The food's going to be first class. You're going to be served in a first class way and, and it's going to be catered to your needs. How did you create the standard? By investing as much time as I did in myself before I started the the, the business of TXG. So, you know, I, I I was I was I would say I was underpaid for the first 15 to 18 years of, of my career. And I was completely fine with that. Um, because I knew that what the end game was. I knew that it was it was all just, you know, money in the, the, the bank for me effectively from a you know a sweat equity perspective that one day I would have seen every single part of this business and I would I would have been part of every one of our competitors, which I did uh, in our business. I was able to spend time with all of them. And at the end of the day, get such a well-rounded view of who does it well and who doesn't that we would know how to present ourselves to our clients. Wow, I find that amazing. It's like the it's like the chef that goes to work as sort of a silent ghost chef mm-hmm. in different restaurants and figures out all the secrets between the master chefs and then goes and opens their own door. When did you? I mean, fifteen years is a long time to toil below labor, below rate labor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. When did you know that you wanted to have your own company? That's a great question. So. I was fortunate that the opportunity presented itself to me before I sought out the opportunity. So 2011, I was still working in Scotland um, for TaylorMade. Uh, I was approached by an investment group here in uh, in Toronto to join uh, a brand new venture over here and be one of five owners of, of that business. At that time, I was brought in really as someone with notoriety in the club fitting, club building world. So it would add some cachet to their business and, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to have a scottish speaking uh you know club fitter in there the home of golf and all that sort of thing and you know people joke all the time the only reason you got in the door was because of your accent <laughs> uh, which i'm fine with but you know once we're in the door we've got to make it count which is exactly what we've done um but it, at that point when i think my rate of learning slowed from a you know a golf equipment standpoint learning about clubs and swings and biomechanics and all these different things. When the rate of learning slowed for that, my thirst for the rate of learning from a business perspective grew exponentially. And I wanted to learn everything that I possibly could about the, the business of making, you know, this passion that I have for club fitting, making it work from a business perspective. Interesting. So to be clear, you did not choose to join the consortium of five investors. So I did join them. Yeah, I did. I spent oh. four four years there as a as a part owner of, of that business. Um, and, and it was really my first look at, you know, at, at business metrics, at, you know, P&Ls and, and, you know, everything that we would, you know, supply to our investors or investment group. Um, but at that point, uh, I knew I wanted to, to create or be part of a global entity. Um, you know, I wanted it to be much, much more than, than just a, a local, you know, local golf store. I knew there was there was something, and there was an opportunity because I had seen that this wasn't being sort of um, rolled out across the world. And, and you know, when I heard stats of less than three percent of golfers actually get fitted for their golf clubs, the opportunity is, is is just right there for you. And 
obviously knowing the, the impact we make on golfers every single day and, and how they, they sort of leave, how happy it makes them, how much better their games get, the, the business model is, is perfectly there in front of us. So I just want to understand, so you joined a, a group of five investors mm -hmm. and then did you sell your shares in order to start TXG or do you no, continue? No, I, I walked away from them. Yeah, I walked away from them, left them on the table. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, walked away from them. And because, you know, we, we had a conversation where I had laid out in, in the latter part of my time with them, I had laid out a, a plan, a five-year plan um, to basically globalize our company, take us into new markets. I had just been in Dubai, um, and it was this was 2014. I'd just been in Dubai, done a deal with the Els Club, um, named after obviously Ernie Els and, and uh, his his course at their stunning golf course. They already had a a Butch Harmon Golf Academy there, so they were partnering with best in class uh, facilities all around the world. So you know we were part of that, which was really exciting. But the uh, the investment group were more cautious than my ambition level was at that time. So when we had those conversations, and I respected it, John, that's the first thing I'll say. You know, there was there was no bad feeling for me that they didn't share the same ambition levels for me because it wasn't my money that was going into the thing. You know, I was completely respectful that you know I'm asking for something from them that they might not be comfortable to to give in in the, in the capital requirements that to have 15 stores over the next five years would take a significant investment. Uh, to do that so for me when they said that wasn't the same vision that they shared I, I knew my time was up at that company because you know my, my the fire in my belly at that point was so was so rabid and, and just it was it was you know it just i felt like i had such a, a new lease of life um that i just i couldn't wait to do my own thing and paddle my own canoe and make my own decisions paddle my own canoe friendly canadian reference there I like that. <laughs> but why didn't you at least sell those shares to the group that seems like you would have needed the money to build up txg why not sell the share did you consider it or did you have conversations about selling or i, I didn't have a single conversation about it um at the time there was an amount of money put in by their investment team and they had not yet been paid the money back out for that. So as, as a company that was effectively in the red, I didn't feel like it was right to, to you know, ask for any part of that because, you know, the first person that needs to get their money out is the investor. And then after that, however, you know, that plays out from a dividend perspective is, is fine. Um, but I didn't, I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. Got it. And so how did you finance the early days of TXG? I had a, a, a one single business partner. Um, so, you know, he, he fronted 100% of the upfront cash. Uh, so we, we started this, this thing together. Um, you know, he, he and I met uh, quite a funny story. So he came into uh, the, the first business I started here in Canada and we came in as a potential client and, you know, we showed him around, we talked to him about it. So he was from North East China, Dalian in the Northeast um, of China. So, you know, he reached back out to me a couple of uh, weeks after the first time I met him and said, hands up, my meeting with you the first time around was actually to, you know, try and scope out your facility. And really what I want to do is, is open these things up all over China. Um, so I was coming in to, to see how to do it and talk to the guy that, that I believe is, is the right guy to kind of tell me how to do it. And he said, two weeks into this discovery process, I realized it doesn't matter how much money we have, how much technology we buy and what the goods we have on the shelf are. It's more important as to who the people are that are running the business. 
um, and we can't make this business work sort of unless we have the people. So if you ever want to do it, I'm your man and uh, come and come and let me know. And then where does it go from there? How did you guys work out the details? So he and I, uh, we made a trip to China together. Uh, I went, I went to China, met his family, met his friends. Uh, he, he at the time was running his family's businesses. They had twenty five uh, cinemas in the northeast of China. They had a few other business interests, and um, this was going to be their first business outside of China. So I flew over to there and had a week with him, and you know met the, met the family, etc. And then um, you know he and I he and I got started. We started the business here. He wanted to start it in China, but I said, listen, you know we have we have a reputation we have built in in Canada. You know, we have a, a client base, you know, let's start it here. And if it grows, you know, into Asia, great. But there's a bigger opportunity here and we're going to have way less hurdles here than we would do um, over over in China, um, especially with the, the amount of counterfeit golf clubs that exist over there. So, you know, I thought that, that would be a much, much more difficult task. So we started it here and in, in actually the back of an indoor simulator facility. We had 1800 square feet uh, in the back of that facility. There was um, you know, four of us that started the business. We had, you know, me as a club fitter, we had club builders. We had my wife, Tracy, who was, uh, who was kind of doing the, the reception and, and customer service work. And, um, and, and that was really kind of all we had to get us going from, uh, from the start in 2016. How did you divvy up the equity? So Joe and I went 50-50, um, uh, investor Joe and I. So, you know, it was, it was straight 50-50 uh, with, with he and I uh, right out of the gates. Um, and you know, he was, he was completely comfortable, you know, with, with that side of things and, and as was I, um, so we actually had, um, we had an agreement that I, I had basically said to him was you can hold 30% of my equity until you get your 500 K back. Um, and once you have your, you know, your money back, then we are, we are true 50, 50 partners. Got it. And you, so you proceeded with that approach. So he put in yes. 500 grand. And he he took that money out in dividends before you were able to call yourself a 50-50 partner. Is that right? Yes. Got it. And how did you structure the legal terms? I've heard people use a shotgun clause when there's mm -hmm. a 50-50 partnership. Is that how you structured it legally? No. No. We we never we never we never done anything uh, we never done anything like that. We never uh, we never had any clauses how one was going to get the other out or anything like that. Um you know, and, and maybe naively, you know, as, as time goes on, John, you know, you learn that not everyone's intentions are, are quite as, as maybe honorable as, as your own. And, and that's the thing. But, you know, I will say with, with Joe and I, I never, ever felt that that was, uh, that was the case. And, you know, he and I, he and I were, you know, and, and he never once asked me for any single, um, you know, annual report, financial report on the business. You know, he wouldn't even really check in to see, you know, anything other than, are you good? Do you need anything? I see things are going well. And we would touch base that way. So wow. it, was, it was very much, you know, uh, you know, a friendship first and, and a business relationship after. You mentioned the standard. And I want to go back to this because I think a lot of our listeners um, are struggling with replicating themselves you are by any measure a master of your craft i'll say it you won't but i will and Thank and you. recognize <laughs> the world over for that as a master fitter first and foremost somehow you had to duplicate yourself and mm -hmm. and your answer to my question 
you know, what was, how did you replicate the standard? You said, well, it started with me you know, working below market wages and really understanding the craft for mm. 15 years. I get that. But go further for me because, because there are lots of experts, chefs, graphic designers, writers, photographers who are brilliant at what they do, but can't get other people to be as good as them or even close to as good as them. So how did you get other fitters to, to kind of get close to how good you are? Like what was like specifically, what did you do? So the, the specifics on it, uh, I, th I think come down to ultimately the people that we try to hire. They're, you know, sort of EQ rather than IQ um, was, was much more appealing to me. There was, you know, lots of people who, you know, I think were, were maybe from the offset, better, more experienced fitters. But I think the team of people that I always wanted to build had to first and foremost have have very, very high sort of, you know, EQ. So when it comes to their customer, their their ability to relate to a customer, you know, I can't teach you to be a good person. I can't teach you to do the right thing when the wrong thing is right in front of you. I can teach you what this shaft does with that head at that length and how we build the clubs. I can teach you all of that stuff. And, and you know, there's ways in which we've done that at our very first store, um, our first main store, our flagship fitting location here in Toronto. You know, I positioned myself in the middle bay of three. Uh, I designed the facility to be different from our first facility, which was three closed rooms. This facility, I made an open concept. So I could always be fitting my clients with two my two other sort of trainees either side of me so that both I could talk to my client, they could hear me, and I had an ear either side of me to hear them. So I was able to multiply things that way always. And um, and, and I would say that was one of the most successful things that we'd done. And then, you know, so far, rolling out that model um, as we grew. I love that. I love that. Because there's nothing better than learning from the person while you're in situ when you're doing the work yourself. How did you evaluate people's EQ? I mean, was there a question you asked in a job interview? Was there a uh, psychometric test that you had everybody do? Like, what was your way to measure that? It was. It was. There was a lot of um, question, and there was a lot of sort of analysis of what would you do in this scenario? What would you do in that scenario? Um, what was your favorite question? Um, we would always present a question that was that was for the the benefit of the, the the company versus the benefit of the client. And if if somebody if somebody ever leaned towards the the decision to make a decision for the business over the decision for the client, I, I would never favor that that person or, or you know that sort of uh, moral compass. For me, our, our business was was always had to be, we always had to present ourselves a, a customer service centric company that fitted golf clubs. And that was, that always came first. So as long as they had, a, you know, a customer service sort of mind with them, you know, we could always sort of teach them sort of other things. And, you know, the group of people we had, I started with three guys that I have worked with me before. So I knew I had a good foundation of experience with them. And then after that, we, we just brought in people that, Again, as we assessed them, had a very, very, you know, mostly high intelligence. Interesting. What was your your long term vision for TXG? Like, it sounds like it wasn't to to make a ton of money and run off to the bank. If it was, you would have taken the short term fix of the high margin product. It wasn't mm -hmm. the best one for the client. Right. I'm sure, it would, you know, you would have hired more sharks, people who were mm -hmm. more kind of 
commercial and their intent as opposed to customer centric. It sounds like your, your goal for the company was not first and foremost to make money. There was some other goal. Am I, am I picking Correct. up on something that was- You are, you are 100%. It was, it was a big, big part of it was, you know, I wanted to leave a legacy um, of having a company that became a global renowned entity for providing people with golf equipment that could help them enjoy the game more. So that was why when we knew that with a, nothing more than a $500,000 investment, and we were not going to have the capital behind us to do that. So the, the way we knew we could scale was, was digitally. So we started our YouTube channel in 2017, and that gave, gave us the platform for, for people to come and, and see the way we do it. And I believed at the time, I truly, truly believed, John, we'd done things differently from other people. And if we presented ourselves in a way that people could see what we do, not we, we tell them what we do, if we showed what we do, then they would sort of believe in, you know, believe in us as well. And, you know, we grew the, the YouTube channel to, you know, 216,000 subscribers. And, you know, we would get the opportunity to sort of travel the world to kind of do what we do, which is just kind of how the, the TXG brand um, sort of exploded over the last five years. Yeah, I've watched some of the videos actually in preparation for for this session. And, and if, if folks haven't checked it out, um, you should uh, just type in Ian Fraser TXG into any um, YouTube search bar and you will find it. The production values are really slick. It, it looks like a professional television studio kind of produ production value. So it, yeah. it's really, it's really quite exceptional. Thanks. And at the same time, I wonder, did you worry about giving away the secret sauce by publishing no. it? No, it was the, the, the secret was to give away the secret sauce. So you can be, you know, Gordon Ramsay, you can be, you know, any top chef, what does a chef do? They, they take the recipes and they put them in a book and they sell them to the world and everybody can see it. What that does is it, it puts you as, as a, I always say the same term to our guys, standard bearer. So, you know, we, if we put that out there, people can copy what we do. They can replicate what we do, but it, people know it was unique to us, um, you know, when, when they first came to us. So, I absolutely wanted people to to take the way we were doing things, and obviously, in in a YouTube video or anything, you're you're never going to be able to show your full hand. Um, you're going to be able to show your skill set, but you you know you're never going to, you know, have the amount of time to show everything that makes us you know truly uh, truly unique. But again, back to that legacy play, it was it was more important for me to help golfers all over the world and, and knowing that we would never see the 99% of people that, wa that watch our channel, we would maybe deal with 1% who would travel to see us or were lo you know, local to us, but we would help people stop making bad decisions on the golf equipment that they play. So, you know, they would stop wasting money on drivers that don't fit them or listening to marketing jargon that tells them they're promised 10 more yards when the reality is there's, there's no extra yards, you know, for them until they get that club fitted to them. So fascinating. How big did you get TXG before you wanted to sell? You mentioned two hundred more than 200,000 YouTube subscribers, but what about mm -hmm. the physical kind of stores or revenue or number of employees, any proxy you want to use for size? Yeah, we, we, were, we were still very much in the infancy of it. You know, I, we saw the thing getting towards the tipping point of 
profitability to the point where your profitability is not jeopardizing the future of your company. And we were, we were kind of, we were still there on that. So we had, we had Toronto, Mississauga, um, you know, we had a, an outdoor location here in the city, but we hadn't, we talked about expanding into Calgary as the, the deal happened. We had talks in Vancouver and, and all over, but, you know, we were still primarily a, a two location company when we were acquired by the club champion group. And, um, you know, we were, we were in that, in that spot of not yet being quite big enough to, to freely spend, you know, the, the, you know, the, the cash that we had in the business on new locations just yet. Mm -hmm. And, and so how did you grow? So the YouTube channel grew, I'm assuming by word of mouth, uh, but you, you also would have had some fairly significant, uh, expenses. I would have thought in terms of production, uh, so videographers editing, mm -hmm. you had staff doing that, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the one, so we, we, we basically had, had one other, so my co-host, um, on the, the channel. So we, we had his company, uh, so he done all the, all the production, all the editing, and he was actually in the videos as a co-host and that, that wasn't the plan from day one, but he and I had a good on-screen relationship in that, you know, we kind of dovetailed so well together and he was a good golfer. He was left-handed, which was definitely unique. He had a really, you know, good golf swing and good speed that he presents himself really well online. So, you know, at the, at the start, we, we had an agreement with him as a monthly retainer. And then we, this was sort of before, you know, the, sort of the channel was doing that well. Each, we were each taking 25% of the revenue from the YouTube channel. And then, you know, we would, that, that revenue grew, et cetera, et cetera. And got to the point where, you know, the, the YouTube channel was making an excess of $30,000 a month. Wow. And rather than being a, a marketing expense, um, you know, our marketing was a revenue stream, our, you know, it was a line item on the revenue. So, you know, it just seemed like for us, we were in such a, a fortunate position that everyone has to spend our a dedicated budget on marketing. Our marketing made us money and drove us clients at the same time, which, which was win-win. That's awesome. So walk me through the line items on the revenue top line. So you had, you had $30,000 a month coming in from YouTube, you had mm -hmm. fitting revenue, yes. you had club uh, sales revenue where you were buying shafts from Mitsubishi and then reselling right. them presumably to to clients. Mm -hmm. Were there other? Was there another significant form of revenue, or were those the three big ones? That's the three big ones. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. There's 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 small sort of little you know bits and bobs that are more services than than really you know line items that we would call significant. But um, yeah, between the, the the services, the 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 sale of the clubs and and the YouTube revenue, that was that was our sort of main profit. Of our Got main revenue from there. Are you able to share roughly kind of size of, of revenue? Or if you're not comfortable doing that, that's that's okay. But ballpark or number of employees, anything like that? Yeah. So we were at the time when we sold the business, we were we were sort of north of the two million mark, probably two, four, two, five million in, in club sales. Um employees did we have at that point? We must have been in around the kind of, you know. 14, 15 employees um, at that point. And we were we were very back office heavy, John, mm -hmm. because of the nature, the customer service nature of, of our business and making sure that we we had turnaround times that were sort of not competitive, but you know, we wanted to be the fastest, you know, to turn you know, clubs around, et cetera, et cetera. So that that's why, as I say, we were we were in that slower growth phase at that time. You know, for us, we looked at it, you know, store four. 
into and, and beyond was basically when we could really ramp up um, the, the sort of growth of, of our company. And we were, we were certainly on that trajectory at the time, just post COVID, where golf had been through the, you know, the boom that it, it was in. And at one point, we had 1,500 people on a wait list trying to get into a TXG. It wow. was, I've never honestly heard anything like it in, in the golf industry. It was, it was bananas. That's incredible. Okay, so ballpark, you're kind of three to four or five million in revenue, kind of that sort of bracket. Um, and if I'm reading between the lines, again, tell me if I'm not uh, getting it right. Kind of marginally profitable, but you're pouring a lot of the money back into the company at this point with, with the view to grow. Pretty much all of it. It was all going back in, um, which again, at the point of the sale, when when we sold the company, you know, the challenge we had was, you, you know, you've got you've got people on the, you know, the the sort of financial side of of this deal trying to sort of produce a yeah yeah <laughs> produce like, an EBITDA number, um, and you know, trying to come up with a you know how to value our business because from a profitability standpoint, we were pouring it all back in. Yeah. So it's not like we can present our financials and go, okay. You know, we knew our potential value was the way it had to be. We, we it had to be valued on potential, not not you know EBITDA at that point, because you know realistically we were, we were never going to get what the business was worth at that point. Did you have any sense of what the valuation could be based on the size of the YouTube channel? Like, did you have a? I mean, this is before you went and met club champion guys mm -hmm. like did you were you starting to formulate some views in terms of what it was worth and maybe share yeah. that yeah yeah so i have two really key important people uh in, in my sort of business journey and you know mentorship has been something that's meant a lot to me and, and I had two people that i worked with one very much on the business side of things um uh, a sort of mentor and consultant by the name of jim bakey here in, in toronto bakey international is his company and he was he became a close friend, was a client uh, that walked through the door and Jim has, has six kids and, uh, and walked in one day for a, to have his daughter fit, who's a competitive player, and walked out with his, his eyes wide open and, and came back, you know, a couple of weeks later and bought five other sets for the other kids. And, you know, he and I developed a really, really strong relationship. And, uh, you know, he was the one actually that, that basically told me to leave. Um, you know, we were talking about expansion. He's like, nope, nope, you're, you're going to go and do your own thing. And, the other, um, the other mentor I had, her and I spent a lot of time on valuation and, and you know, what's your number? What's your sort of, you know, what's your exit strategy? And if somebody comes along knocking on the door, which is highly likely at this point as you grow this business, and because the reputation was arguably significantly higher than the valuation of the company at the point at that time, what does that look like? So her and I worked an awful lot on that, which really played a big part on the the number that I gave back to the club champion group when when we did sell the company because the initial offer wasn't close to to where we ended up getting to at the end. Yeah, I, I'm curious about that. So Jim Bakey was the one who was really kind of saying, "Hey, you you got to go on your own. That's you, you you've got to go." Yeah, and then you were uh, uh, really helped by this advisor who was getting you to think about like, "What's your number?" So so it sounds like there was a a bit of methodology, which was like, what's it worth to you? To me, in? 100%. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So not kind of what it's worth to a buyer, but what it's worth to you. And, and, and how did you answer that question? Did you have a, uh, yeah, if you're not comfortable sharing the number, that's totally fine. I would be curious though, your methodology for getting there. 
mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, how did you yeah. think about it? Yeah. So, you know, I thought about it. I thought about it from a, a standpoint of we're on this trajectory on our own with or without help. You know, we're, we're growing as a company. A reputation is obviously what's, what's kind of really driving new business through the door. I, I know where we're going in the next, you know, five, six years. So, you know, we could, we could sort of, we had a, a trajectory as, for, as a, a company and, and we basically said from, from year one, and I showed them, you know, our, our forecast before we even got clients in the door. We forecast that we would do this year one, two, three, four, and five. Every single year of business, we hit our metric or exceeded our metrics. So we had a history and track record of knowing exactly what we do because we know how many clients come through the store each year, what they spend, and, and our conversion rates. We, we know what all that looks like. And, you know, we have a track record to show that. So I was able to see exactly where our business would be in that sort of, you know, five to seven uh, year window. And, you know, I basically presented to the guys that where the, our business growth would be and what our business would empower our business would impact their business. So as a U.S. company with 100 doors, I said, yeah, I told them that 45% of the clients that came to our company found us via YouTube. You know, if, if we multiply that effect, even, even if we call it 5%, of your clients come to you via our YouTube channel, you know, that new business on top of what you have is well in excess of $30 million if we apply those same numbers, even if we say it's 5%, not the 45 that we see. So I think I was, you know, able to negotiate a, a sort of a, a different way of looking at our potential um, partnership. Got it. So your, your case to them was number one, I can project out with a high degree of certainty mm-hmm. the next five yep. years. Mm-hmm. Number two, let's just look at with a hundred stores across the U.S. If 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 we can send five percent of our, if we can increase, so it was five percent uh, of the YouTube subscribers went to to a uh, a club championship store. Yeah, that yeah. So at that time. <clears throat> So to, to explain those numbers a little bit more, so our sixty percent of our audience was U.S. based. So at that time, when when you know we were acquired, we probably had one hundred and seventy five thousand subscribers, and and even of those subscribers, fifty low fifties, fifty two percent of the people who watch all of our videos are not subscribers. So we have a large amount of clients um, in the U.S. that were are basically in their target market. So. With um, you know the proper sort of marketing strategy with further investment, you know we were able to sort of show them that we we attract cl- clients by showing them what they can benefit from coming to our stores and and by association we believe that we can do that for you. Got it. And so using those two methodologies, you you could see thirty million dollars of value, if you mm-hmm. will, in terms of the size of your company and the amount of revenue that you were going to send to, to an acquirer. And yeah. so was 30 your number or were you looking for a fraction of that? Like if yeah, it was a percentage is, of that. Yeah, percent, that's right. Okay. Exactly. We're going to share that. That, very, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was very much a projection, um, you know, just thrown out there as a, as a number that, you know, in the, in this room, do we believe that we can bring 5% of our U S audience to a store? When they are so much 
sort of easier to access than our stores here in Canada. You need to fly to Ontario. You need to sort of get an appointment. That's not easy, you know, with the with the back or backlog and lead times that we have. So your club champion is a is a big big company. You know, like Florida alone, they have thirteen stores. So hmm. you know, it's easier to find a club champion store. Um, certainly, it is to find a TXG store. And how did it come about? So you're you're meeting with your mentor. She's encouraging you to think about what it's worth to you. You come mm-hmm. up with a number. Like, what next? Did you reach out to Club Champion? Did they reach out to you? Like, how did that whole thing go? Yeah. So they had reached out to me, um, and and just based, we'd always had a good relationship. I I would meet the guys at industry golf trips, and and you know, shaft vendors would take us to play as a end of year award for business. You know, we take it. Takes the nice courses to play, and also great relationships with the uh, with the guys down there. Um, and they were owned by a private, uh, uh, sort of private equity group out of LA, and they were in this sort of really rapid um, e- expansion phase, which they they absolutely are still in. And really, the only company in, in you know in the club fitting world that's ever really tried to grow, um, you know, in, in this uh, significant way. Um, so they reached out and said, you know, look. Canada's on our radar with or without you. Um, you know, we're, we're okay to do it on our own, but we'd rather do it with you. Um, can we sort of, you know, enter into some talks to see if, if that's something that would be sort of mutually sort of beneficial and if, if we feel like we've got synergy. So you know, we, we, went, we went through a really, really long process. It probably took us, you know, nine, 10 months of, of, discussing it going through the the kind of due diligence process before we even you know came close to having a deal so it it was not it was not a decision that i certainly made lightly at all what was your reaction to learn they when they said you know canada's on our radar we can do it with or without you Mm -hmm. i you know I, i thought to myself good because the amount of money they're going to pour into it they're going to get more eyeballs and club fitting in canada and we can benefit from that um you know, I've never felt competitive against other companies. I've only felt competitive against ourselves. So, you know, I always explain to anyone in our team that the only person you're truly competitive with is the, the version of yourself yesterday and being a better version <laughs> of that self tomorrow. And if, if we take care of business with that, we'll always be on the right side of the, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the business. But what I'm hearing in, in Club Champions initial outreach is mm-hmm. is a lack of respect for what you built on YouTube, a lack of respect for how you went about the standard that you brought. I hear, well, we just want some turf in Canada. Mm-hmm. You're the Toronto guy. So we're doing it with or without you. So I, I heard, and maybe I'm picking up on something that, that wasn't there, but kind of a cocky dismissiveness of what you built. Am I, am I correct that that was part of their initial uh, outreach? I think I, I, they, they certainly were never, I don't think they were ever dismissive. I just, at the time before they had the numbers in their hands, I don't think they understood the profit, the profitability of the YouTube channel. I, you know, like most people listening, you know, probably to hear that a little company at Toronto that, that does a couple of million bucks in retail sales can be, you know, turn, can be making 30 grand a month from YouTube, you know, and, and well, ad revenue. Mind. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people have said to me, why do you even bother selling the clubs? Just just do the online part. But I think it, at the point where they understood the reach and we shared the specifics, 
their respect for it, you know, grew significantly. And, and that obviously played out that way in the negotiation process. And, and obviously they, they got it, they got it a lot more then, but you're right. The, the initial approach was turf. It was very much doors. You know, they, they wanted, they wanted to be in every major city, multiple stores in, in the big cities like Toronto, Vancouver, and, you know, getting up into Ottawa, et cetera, et cetera. So, that was that was the initial uh, approach Got from, it. from and, them. And forgive my ignorance, Club Champion uh, is a club fitter that mm-hmm. has a retail component to it, physical Correct. stores. Uh, same same sort of model as us. Got, yep. it. Got it. And so they had a very similar business model. And originally they thought Canada would be nice. Ian's the guy. But then you started to mm-hmm. uh, educate them about what you had built. How was that? Tell me about how you chose to educate them about about what you'd built? Um, again, just, just by, I think just by showing them, you know, just once they got a chance to look under the, under the hood and, and see inside our business a little bit and see how you, you know, we were doing things a little bit because I'm sure they heard the noise, you know, that if, and within the industry of, you know, TXG are doing this, TXG are doing that. And they're looking down, you know, look, looking up over the border going, oh, what's all the fuss about? They've only got a couple of stores and, you know they're they're not doing much in sales because we can reach out to our vendors and we we know what they're buying mm-hmm. in shafts and you know there's there's all these ways to you know um sort of measure how they're doing what's all the noise about with this company up in Canada and, and really it was because we had put ourselves out there via the YouTube channel and said like us or don't this is how we do it and and thankfully more people liked it than didn't and then we were able to obviously you know gather some significant sort of notoriety by doing that i think i know the answer to this question already but i gotta ask at some point club champion while they could have been a potential acquirer they also could have been a a, a direct competitor i mean they had the same Mm -hmm. business model as you they've already said they're coming to canada were you nervous to give them so much detail about the presence of YouTube because presumably somebody like they could have created their own YouTube channel and they had and, one, John. They they, oh, had, they had one. one. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 had tried. And and it's the unique thing in the golf space is that, you know, kind of every competitor to us has tried to do it and they they've they've never they've never gone beyond uh, uh building a subscriber base more than two percent of what we have. What's your so, secret? Um, consistency, you know, we, 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 I dedicated all my free time, uh, the first two years of the channel, basically, you know, Sundays and Mondays were dedicated. There's my off days. I, I filmed on those days, uh, for, for the first two years so that I knew I couldn't affect the, the revenue, you know, potential of the business by shutting down the store or going to another location. I had to still be doing the bulk of the sales that we talked about earlier on, but we turned up. Um, three to four days a week on YouTube every single week for two years, and that was the that was the kind of goal was to be consistent and see where it gets us. And and after that point, you know, we had we had sort of taken off, and I was able to restructure my own week, and then we actually ended up putting out more content. So you could find us every Monday on a live Q and A. So we would we would be on there and, and answer people's questions and and kind of do like a weekly update in the golf industry show and. Then Tuesday to Friday, we would we do a piece on something relative to golf equipment uh, or or sort of you know game improvement. Interesting. And so it was the consistency that that you continue and the Scottish accent can have helped. And the Scottish accent. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So 
walk me through how things get serious with Club Champion. Did they come to you with an offer? Did mm-hmm. did, yeah. did they say what do you want for it, Ian? Did, did they ask you for a number first, or how did that work? Yeah, so they they, they came they came up with an offer um, that that came through the door, and, and you know it was it was sort of I'd call it respectful, but wasn't wasn't close to to the number. Um, wasn't close to my number, like you said. Of, of you know. It has to be a certain, you know, number, and then the number was part of it. But I can, you know, definitely say it wasn't wasn't the only part. So, uh, but in the financial negotiation side of it, it, it had to be, you know, significant multiples more than their first approach. So again, your number based on this work with your uh, advisor was look, if I'm going to create thirty million dollars of value here mm-hmm. for somebody, I want to I want a piece of that, and that that's going to make me happy. Yeah. Uh, Got it. And and the initial offer came in. It fell well short of that number for you Get, on a on a multiple like a, on a on a just scope. It was at half of half as much as as your number, a third, two thirds. Like just give me a sense of how it was about twenty five percent of of what. So you need to come afford. up four x mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. original. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's a big that's a big gap. So what was their original offer based on? Was it just kind of a multiple of like adjusted EBITDA or revenue, or did you have any sense of how they came up with it? Yeah, so it, it was so they they had they had multiple reports done on the the Canadian market. They looked at you know our business currently and, and what we were doing, and you know they looked at how many times they felt like we could replicate the stores. That we've got right now, and and by extrapolating the profitability of that, that they then came up with the valuation. So we had we had some other, like I said, in terms of the, you know, they would maybe call them intangibles, you know, in terms of you know ways to to sort of add value um to to the business itself. But and and the other part as well that's obviously pertinent to some people who sell their businesses is, is it wasn't all paid up front, and I was good with that. You know, there was a buyout portion and there was an earnout portion. Uh, attached to it and, and that's how i think we were able to push the ceiling of the deal higher was to go okay if, if you believe that this is the way it is you know show us we'll 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 come to the table with you and you know we'll, we'll be as sort of ambitious in this venture in canada as, as you are but you know we're not going to give it all to you up front and, and i completely said you know good I, i'm happy for it to be that way and, and i'm confident we can get there got it and so you had it so you you kind of went back to them and said, "Look, I'm 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 willing to earn some of this in the form of a mm-hmm. earnout, uh, but I need it to be a higher number." So, how did you right. structure the earnout? So, at first, it was uh, there was a uh, it was, it was a bit over two years. So there was you know there was some growth targets, there was some uh, increase um, targets on the YouTube revenue and and sub- subscriber base. Um, you know the digital portion of that, which was very much a bolt onto their business because they were spending. A significant portion of their money on serious FM radio or PGA Tour uh, coverage on, on the weekends, network TV, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of print at the time. So um, you know, we we sort of you know looked at it like you know we're going to present, we're going to offer you guys something sort of significantly different. So those first two years were, were how they they structured that. Which, to be honest, coming off the back at the timing of it, we 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 didn't know if we were going to go into a third lockdown. Here in Canada, mm. so I, you know, built in a little bit of a buffer, made it a three-year window with a slightly slower growth year in year one, accelerating in two and three. So we, you know, not knowing how we we're all going to come out of this COVID uh, COVID thing, we, we had a couple of clauses around the the sort of um, 
you know, COVID situations, some force majeure stuff that was was going to be basically going to impact this deal for me that I had a I had a number that this thing had to get to before it made sense. And if there was some, you know, some catastrophe or some force of nature that was not in our control, that we, we had some ability to negotiate that. Got it. And so did you ever get them up? You know, M&A folks call it the downstroke, but the initial mm-hmm. offer that they, they put to you, did you get any movement on that? Uh, mm-hmm. and so you got some movement on that and you got yep. the earn out. So there was- Right, yes. But by getting those two things to move, mm-hmm. you, uh, uh, you got to a place where you were comfortable. And the earn out was based on revenue as well as YouTube subscriber growth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly that. So um, there, there was a, there's there's you know there's an EBITDA portion as well that uh, as as a business you know we are you know growing uh, or or we're sort of year on year working towards uh, an EBITDA target that you know the first few years in, in anyone's business is never the most EBITDA friendly period um, you know in the, in the business's you know history. So we had to we had to sort of get them to allow us to grow that over time if, if they wanted that to be part, you know a big part of it, which obviously you know uh, investment firms are, are looking for that um from a valuation perspective you know th- we we had to have time that we can grow our company but also be you know increasing the, the EBITDA of it at the same time makes sense how did joe feel about the initial offer <laughs> i mean i think the, the type of listener you have, John, they, they will probably laugh at, at this because it's it's a kind of a bit of a, you know, a, a dreamer's mentality from an investor standpoint. But he, he simply said, Ian, if you're happy, I'm happy. Um, that was it. That was the extent of it. He said, if, if, you're, if you want to stay in and you and I keep going, good. If you want to, you know, if you want us to sell and, you know, we can, you know, we can both make out nicely on this thing and, and you know, we can stay great friends and, and look back at the years we had the business and, and kind of, you know, enjoy a few drinks a few times a year about it and chat about it. They're great too. But he, he literally left the ball in my court and said, you do what's best for you. Cause that's, that's, this doesn't, this, this business never was never going to change his life, but it was going to change mine. Fascinating. You're right. I think a lot of us, <laughs> where do I find Joe? What's his number? <laughs> you know what? You know, there were so many people I was involved with at the time, uh, especially I had some good, you know, colleagues. And, and I was working, you know, as a consultant some, on some businesses in the US. And, you know, I would tell them the story about having, you know, a, a Chinese investor, you know, there, there's no, there's no kind of, you know, shotgun clauses. There's no, there's no hard sort of lines in the business agreement at all. Every one of them said the same thing. I give you no chance of this thing ever working or, or this guy ever being a real deal partner. And uh, there's, there's probably, there's probably uh, another hour I could bore you with uh, the in-between starting the business and to the point where we sell, where we spoke to so many other potential buyers. And, you know, this is not to toot my own horn, uh, you know, at all, but every single one of them at that time because of, you know, we weren't cash flush, you know, at that time as a, you know, as a young business, every one of them asked me to basically ask me to tell or ask Joe to take less than he put in because he was never going to make money out of this business anyway. Um, and it, that was, that was a, it was a conversation stopper for me every single time was we can't continue if you're asking me to 
you know, short sell the guy who, you know, put up every single dollar that went into this business without one guarantee from me. Fascinating. I'm really glad you you uh, you brought us to the end because I'd love to end with uh, just a couple of questions, a lightning round. It'll just uh, I'll ask the question. You can take as much time or as little as you uh, as you want, but it's uh, a way we've kind of traditionally ended these sessions. What was the slimiest trick that an acquirer tried to play on you during all those conversations you had leading up to the one with uh, Club Champion? Kind of trying to get one over on you, yeah. preying on your naivete around the, end mm -hmm. of the process, et cetera. There was, there was just, there was, there was lots of exactly what we just talked about. There's lots of people who, who basically said, and in, in, in part of big, big, um, you know, corporations who, who, who try to buy in big, you know, anyone in the golf industry would know these names if I said them and, and, you know, just trying to convince me that this business was never going to go anywhere with, with this particular investor. We needed significantly more capital behind us, um, in, in order to sort of, you know, to grow it over the time period that it would take and, you know, asking him to take 20%, 20 cents on the dollar of what he put in um, for, and, and basically because he was never going to get a better deal than that anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I just detested people who, who came to the table with that approach. Mm. What was the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company? I would say one mistake I made was with the the guy I started the YouTube channel with was not realizing how he would feel about this this deal. And and you know, we he was he was part of it and you know, he came and he met with the the, the buyers, the club champion guys. We, you know, when they came up, we went out for dinner. And I think at the time I was caught up in the deal so much in the due diligence process and everything that went on with that, which was very, very time consuming as people who have went through it know, um, was not being more closely sort of, you know, monitoring his sort of emotional reaction to what was going on. And, and uh, you know, at the end of it, when he, you know, when the company was bought out, he, he at that time, you know, decided that he had to leave because, you know, he, the reason he started with us was because he thought there was a future as in a, from an ownership perspective at TXG, you know, and he felt like he had sort of sunk in some sweat equity and gave up some dollars in order to try and at some point, you know, earn the right to have some, some equity. And, you know, I, and I think that having a conversation every other, every few months or, or every now and again was not enough during that period. Um, to, to kind of make sure he felt like he was part of this or for me to know that he felt like he was not going to be part of this. So, you know, emotional or sort of relationships are a big, big part of, of sort of my life and, and sort of my business life is, is having good relationships with people. And, you know, I'd probably say not being more on top of that when it's my biggest regret. Yeah, yeah. That's helpful. And I think very common among, uh, when I ask that question, it almost always comes down to people and, 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 mm -hmm these deals have a sense of momentum to them and they kind of take off like a wave and you, you have to stay on the wave or fall off. And it, it, it happens. And I, uh, yeah, I can empathize with that. You know, the other, the other analogy I've heard is, is a roller coaster, And that is that, you know, emotionally this, this can be 
peaks and valleys are quite acute. Mm -hmm. What was the lowest ebb you reached emotionally during the process of selling? I think it was the repetitiveness of the due diligence process mm. was, you know, towards the end, you know, in this, this term that I hadn't heard of, but became very aware of, of deal fatigue. And, and, you know, towards this sort of, you know, we were maybe 75, 80% of the way there. And I'm just looking around and, and, you know, we're, we're having, you know, lawyer meetings and accountant meetings and, you know, and I'm speaking to them more than I'm speaking to my wife and, and family at that point. And, you know, it just, it just felt like this thing was just not worth it. It just was not, you know, it just was not worth it. I, I'm not a, a truly, you know, money motivated person and, and kind of whether I've had a lot of money in my pocket or not a lot of money in my pocket, I've never really felt any different. You know, I've never really walked around feeling any different at all. So I knew ultimately if it didn't happen, it, it's not like it would make me unhappy as a person or, you know, it would, it would break any relationship. So you know, that 80% of deal done time period was where I went, I, I just don't know if I want to see this thing through. Did you ever tell the other side that? No, hmm. but I think they, they saw in, in some, you know, maybe there'd be like times where the, uh, my responsiveness would sort of die down a little bit and, and I would prioritize our business over the potential of this, you know, acquisition. And, you know, they they would sort of have to, keep checking in are you still an interest are you still this are you still that i said listen i am but at this point to be honest I, i'm i'm taking myself out of our business and, and into this potential deal and it's starting to our business is suffering as a consequence mm, yeah what was the high point emotionally it wasn't when the deal went through it was not when the deal went through um A great question. I, I I'm not sure where the uh, where the highest point uh, you know of it of it was. Um, you know, I, I still think we're, we're still in the phase of of the earnout right now. So so maybe towards maybe maybe once the deal is done, truly done, that you know I can maybe look back and give you a better answer to that one. But I think as of right now, I still feel like we're in the middle of the deal because there's still money to be earned that's, that's sort of on the table. And you know, when all that is done, I'll. I'll have a better sense of whether we achieve the full potential of the valuation I put on it back when we struck the deal. When it comes to learning about the M&A world, words like deal fatigue, it sounds like you leaned heavily on your advisor as well as yeah. Jim Bakia, your, your mentor. Mm -hmm. were, there, were there other resources you leaned on? The reason I'm asking this question is I would love to point our listeners to uh, good books, courses, conferences people should go to, mentors people should seek out. Like, are there people that you could point others to that would be helpful? Yeah, uh, without a doubt. And I, I had mentors and consultants around me. One of one of my really, you know, close close friends now, and he was he was you know, came into business as a consultant. He was the former president of Adidas Canada, hmm. and you know was involved in lots of business sort of. Um, deals with Adidas Group, with Reebok and Rockport, and they they actually own TaylorMade, you know, which was then bought out um, by by an overseas group. But for Steve to be part of the business while I was going through that was was massive for me. And he and I have a bond that I believe now that will last a lifetime because of what we went through together. And 
um, you know, how much he helped me through that period. And, and there was a lot of self help and learning, you know, at the start of this, I kind of, um, I, I shared with you that your book, um, Bell to Sell was, was, was something I had read during that process. Cause coming from the club fitting world, you know, I never went to school for business. I never, I never ever thought I was going to be, you know, in this position. My dad is an entrepreneur. He owns, you know, he took over his dad's business hmm. construction company in Scotland, you know, ran the business on his own, has has done, you know, for all my life basically. And I've watched him do it. Um, so I, you know, I guess I always had that kind of entrepreneurial sort of mentality inside me, but I didn't know how to do it. So you know, I, I would say, you know, your book was, that was a big, big part. And, and, you know, you and I connected by a mutual contact mm. and it was, it was never the way that, you know, we never shared any information together prior to me telling you that, but it, it was, it was a big, big uh, part of it, you know, and, and understanding that if you're going to reach the, if your goal is to sell, you have to be so mindful of this, you know, this exit strategy sort of concept and, you know, how, how are you going to present your business for it to then you know, be attractive to a buyer. And, you know, we spent quite a bit of time, you know, thinking of our business that way, as I say, from the digital element online, you know, where everyone else is spending money on print and network TV and serious FM radio, we're putting ourselves out there on a platform that's free to, you know, upload videos and they'll actually pay to do that. Um, yeah. So, you know, there was, there was sort of that, that part of it. So, you know, those those were the major influences for me. A lot of the people around me and, and some of the information that that uh, you know that I sort of you know read or, or listened to. Super helpful. Last question. Tell me what trophy you bought yourself to commemorate the win. I realize that you are still in your uh, period, and there's another check coming, but you must have bought yourself some sort of trophy. Do I have to ask Tracy? Is is, is she <laughs> well? Her, her trophy, her trophy is 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 a great. I tell everyone what she bought herself. Um, but mine was mine was. I bought a nice car. Nice. What'd you uh, buy? I bought a, I bought a, a nice um M's. Uh, sorry, nice BMW X6 MCs. Um, that was that was nice. Uh, recently got myself a nice watch, and and we moved into a nice family home. So we we've the just trifecta. moved into a lovely home. In, in Oakville, we've got two little kids now, which we didn't have when we uh, when we started this deal. So we got two young youngsters, uh, and to watch them playing in their pool, and they've got a little movie theater in the room now that they can sort of you know go in and watch movies together, which is was fantastic. And Tracy's gift to herself was a collapsible strainer. <laughs> That's what she wanted, John. A collapse from. I never forget. We were on a walk together. We're walking our little dog, and and you know you share these dreams. And I, I said to her, "What do you want? You know, what's is it a bag? Is it a you know? Do you want? Do you want a car or whatever it is?" And she said, "You know, really get my eye on a collapsible strainer." I said, "Well, you, you know, you treat yourself to one in every size that you can find. You're you're welcome to it." <laughs> Oh, that's so great. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm so thrilled that uh, you took the time to share your story. And I think it's incredible. Again, it's um, TXG acquired by Club Champion Group. For folks watching and listening who want to check out the YouTube channel, what's the fastest way? Is it just Ian Fraser TXG or what's the fastest way to find it? I would just put in TXG Golf. I would just put in TXG Golf into into YouTube and, and it'll all, all pop up there. You can sort of watch the videos, you can subscribe, you can join us on a Monday and, and ask questions about your own game, be as selfish as you want. 
we're, we're very involved on Instagram as well. We, we kind of keep up with our, our audience on there. We're, we're post three or four times a day on, on that platform. So, you know, we, we try to be as engaging as we possibly can and, and sort of, you know, even, even direct messages are still probably answer, are 30 to 40 a day. Right. Um, and my own account. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just what the business was built on. So, you know, it, it's not going to change anytime soon. And the Instagram channel again, TXG golf will find. So yeah, it's, it's, um, so it's changed a little bit because of the, the club champion portion, but it's now TXG X CC. So TXG and club champion effectively. So when we, we merged accounts, we became TXG X CC. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Thank you. And are you also a LinkedIn guy? Do you want us to put your LinkedIn profile? Or the, sure. Your, yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll, absolutely. We'll throw that uh, all at uh, builttosell.com. Ian, thanks for doing this. John, appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. And there you have it for today's interview between John and Ian. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then as always, be sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support this podcast, you can either head over to Apple Podcasts where there you'll have the opportunity to leave a rating and review, or we encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy listening to today's episode. A reminder that if you want to watch this full interview, you can head over to our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio, where there you'll get the opportunity to watch this full interview today between Ian and John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including my top three favorite videos that I think you'll enjoy from Ian, head over to our show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the opportunity to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering and special thanks to our certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.